It is Wednesday, December 20th, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk with Seattle Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal about the passage of the GOP tax bill. And then we chat with Shankar Narayan. He is the Technology and Liberty Project Director for the ACLU of Washington. And we talk with him about the ACLU's response to the FCC's overturning of net neutrality. And then we talk again with Shannon Hader. She is the former director of Global HIV and TB at the Center for Disease Control about the Trump administration's move to ban the CDC's budget office from using seven specific words and phrases. We also have coverage of Indivisible Washington's 8th District's candlelight vigil for the working class. Then I'll close with a few thoughts about the year in review. On Tuesday, the GOP tax bill, known here and elsewhere as the Trump tax scam, passed the House and Senate. And now on Wednesday, the bill headed to the Oval Office, where it will be signed. We are joined now by 7th District Congresswoman from Seattle, Pramila Jayapal. Congresswoman, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's so great to be with you. So first, this is this is a tough loss uh, for, for so many reasons. Uh, Ezra Levin of Indivisible said in a tweet late last night that while some on the progressive side are wanting to think of this as a sort of victory because the pain this bill will cause can be used in running against Republicans in the House and Senate, uh, that first and foremost, we really need to remember the human cost of something like this. Do you have any thoughts you'd like to share along those lines? Yeah, I mean, this is it's a devastating uh, loss for working people, for poor people across the country. You know, I think that um, it may be that it leads us to victory in November. But the but the toll, as you said, and we as we were this the first time because they screwed up and we had to vote it again today, which is doubly painful. Um, You know, as we were voting, there were a number of protesters in the balcony, a, a young woman in a wheelchair talking about how her uh, Medicaid is going to be cut, triggered automatically through this. Um, Her premiums are, are, you know, uh, or not her premiums, but other people's premiums are going to spike. She was yelling and and others were yelling and saying, you know, kill the bill, don't kill us. And I think it just reflects the intensity of opposition to the bill. I mean, it is an extremely unpopular bill, probably the most unpopular bill that has ever come to the United States Congress. Uh, But they don't care. The Republicans literally laughed as people with disabilities, people in wheelchairs, people on Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, people across this country who are being lied to right now when the Republicans say this is a middle class uh, tax cut, but what they're doing is they're cutting the top rate for the wealthiest people from 39 to 37%. They say it's a middle-class tax cut, and they're cutting, uh, you know, they're repealing the estate tax. They're not repealing it completely, but they're, they might as well be because it only affects 5,400 families now, and they're going to double the exemption to $22 million. So all of a sudden, a $22 million individual becomes the middle class. It's just it really is outrageous. And, you know, they said they were going to Trump during his campaign said we're going to, you know, I'm going to cut the carried interest tax loophole. Well, no, all of those loopholes still exist, but they've cut the corporate tax rate down to 21 percent. And they have put into the bill provisions that would actually incentivize corporations 
to send jobs elsewhere to some tax haven uh, in another country instead of supporting factories on Main Street. So it, it is it is just a a $2.3 trillion tax cut wrapped in hypocrisy, as one of my colleagues said on the floor today. Yeah. And, you know, the image that you just mentioned of Republicans actually laughing while protesters in wheelchairs were being removed from the chambers is is actually just uh, chilling. It's hard to get out of my head. Um, and, and as you yeah. mentioned, uh, this is a it's just a historically unpopular piece of legislation. Uh, I believe its average approval in polling is somewhere in the high 20s. Uh, we've heard a number of people speculate that the GOP is gambling, that a lot of the pain that this bill will wind up causing won't won't come until after the 2018 election. What, what do you make of that assessment? Well, that that is true that they phased in and phased out a lot of things, you know, and so it's very difficult to even understand what exactly is going to hit and people I think are going to be scrambling. You know, I think the reality is they they said that this was a middle class tax cut. So it isn't just that people are um, going to see their their taxes go up. It's also that they're not going to see any benefit. And at the same time, they're going to see things like, you know, premiums rising. Because just remember, I mean, thanks to Indivisible and people across the country, we defeated Trump care three times. Right. But they have inserted this provision that says that we're going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act uh, individual mandate. This is going to throw 13 million Americans off of healthcare, and it's going to spike premiums for tens of millions of people more. And so people are going to see those effects of the other things that this bill is doing. And just as an example, if you have a student loan and you're paying off student loan debt, which so many people across the country are, $1.4 trillion in student loan debt, that's the bill I sponsored with Bernie Sanders to try to you know, reform completely um, this crisis that we have. To date, you've been able to deduct the interest that you pay on those student loans. They took that out. So now students are going to see their taxes go up substantially because they're not going to be able to deduct that anymore. You you know, state and local taxes for us in Washington state, the fact that we used to be able to not have to double pay on our state and local taxes, they've taken that out now. Well, they've capped it at 10000 And so People won't see that necessarily right away because you won't see it until next year. But the state legislature understands that that is a massive impact. And so you're going to see cuts, you know, to critical programs or we're going to have to raise more revenue at the state level to make up for those for those uh, for those taxes. Well, and speaking of raising revenue, uh, you have said that as a Democrat that you uh, belong to what is not just an opposition party, but a proposition party. And so to that end, what are some things in your mind that Democrats in Congress can do in the, the short and even long term to help mitigate some of the damage that this tax bill will likely cause to working class and poor Americans? Well, look, I think the reality of this, and I hate to say this, is that we have to win back the majority. That is, I mean, it's very difficult for us to pass anything. Now, we are certainly, with the budget, just as an example, we are using whatever little leverage we have. And we're saying, if you want Democratic votes, then you must include our priorities. And that includes, for example, funding the children's health insurance program. They're telling us they don't have money to fund that. Or their version of paying for it is to strip the money out of the Affordable Care Act. That's what they're calling their funding of CHIP. And just think about this. 
uh, Stefan, it's $15 billion to pay for CHIP. That covers eight and a half million families, sick kids across the country. Their estate tax repeal is $20 billion. So they're, they want to pay for 5,400 families to get even more benefit, the richest families in the country. But they're saying we don't have money to pay for these CHIP uh, recipients. And so we are trying to leverage and saying, I'm not signing on to a budget deal that doesn't include these priorities, CHIP, the community health centers, a clean dream act. I have said consistently, I'm not signing on to something that's going to deport um, our dreamers and continue to make them a political football. But in the end, our power comes from what, what indivisible and other groups do across the country. And that is, changing the landscape as we did in Virginia, as we did in Alabama. We're going to have to do that again in uh, in the fall. We're going to have to take back the majority, and then we're going to have to play hardball. You know, too often I, I believe that sometimes my wonderful party and caucus <laughs> were reasonable people and people want to sort of be nice and, you know, include. and But they ran through a whole bunch of things that we must undo for the benefit of the American people. And that's what I'm going to work really hard to make sure that we do. Well, as I say, elections have consequences, and we're certainly hoping that elections in 2018 have real consequences. And I do believe that uh, people in Indivisible and other grassroots groups uh, believe that the it's quite possible the very future of our nation may hinge on some of the elections in 2018. So we're all going to, I think we're yep. really going to put our shoulder to the wheel there. But I want to yep. say uh, thank you so much for all of your tireless work, uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, and uh, happy holidays to, to you and yours. Well, thank you so much. And thanks to all of your listeners and to you for everything that you do. We could not do the resistance and prepare for taking over without you. So thank you. Shankar Narayan is the Technology and Liberty Project Director at the ACLU of Washington, and he joins us now to talk about the FCC's move to end net neutrality and what the ACLU has planned next. Shankar Narayan, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I know the issue has been discussed a lot lately, but I, I want to briefly break down what net neutrality means and what it will mean to overturn it. Uh, previously, Internet providers have had to treat all Internet content equally and couldn't, say, privilege access to certain sites and slow down access to others. And this is based on what are called common carrier rules, which uh, I, I understand have a very long history in this country. Can you elaborate on what common carrier rules are and what they mean? A phone service providers, for example, are subject to common carrier rules, right? Yes, that's exactly right. You know, I think historically when a service has been both in the position of being a natural monopoly, right, where the barriers to entry are very high, so you can't just come in, for example, and build a competing uh, broadband network without spending billions of dollars. So historically, where there have been these high barriers to entry and a service has been very central to the life of our nation, you know, a good example is, is railroads, for example, where, uh, you know, once upon a time in this country, we actually had railroad barons who would charge exorbitant fees to carry goods from one place to another on their railroad networks. 
Uh, and they could do that simply because no one had the money to go and build a competing railroad network, and it would have made no sense to do so. Right. Uh, and, of course, then our leaders and our legislature recognized that that uh, situation was detrimental to the commerce of the nation and regulated railroads as, as a common carrier. So that's one example, but, but there are many throughout history where these, these kinds of services including, by the way, telephone service, which, uh, you know, many of these, these same carriers were regulated under when they, when they actually provided telephone service. Uh, it's, it's that kind of a thing where it's so central and so vital to the life of the nation that we hold it important for uh, there to be a neutral pipeline where the provider of the pipeline can't pick and choose between uh, uh, people or kinds of information or different users uh, based on the content uh, that, that their pipeline is transporting. Uh, and that's exactly what these net neutrality rules were before they were repealed. Well, so you've actually just answered a question I think a lot of people had, which was why this is not an issue that could be solved by, say, market competition. And that's because in a lot of instances, people really only have a choice between two or in some instances, in my case, actually, uh, only one Internet service provider. And so, yeah. So in practical terms, what does the FCC's move to end net neutrality mean? What are Internet service providers able to do now? Well, what they can do now is discriminate on the basis of content. So they could, for example, uh, throttle, in other words, slow down uh, access to a particular website. They could block or censor some content entirely if they don't, if they don't like it or if it's the website of a competitor uh, and, and really uh, uh, become the gatekeepers for the kinds of information that people can access uh, online. Uh, so this is actually not a speculative fear because these very companies uh, prior to the imposition of the net neutrality rules had done exactly these kinds of things. Uh, so there are a few examples that, that I can think of where this happened, uh, uh, where, for example, AT&T, when they were streaming uh, a, uh, an Eddie Vedder performance, and Eddie Vedder uh, criticized uh, the president at the time, George Bush, uh, AT&T actually censored out those words, uh, oh. and even though uh, Eddie Vedder had not used profanity, you know there was there was nothing uh, untoward. It was just a political message that the carrier did not like. Uh, another example is is Comcast, which throttled uh, file sharing services like BitTorrent. So in other words, they they slowed down an entire large category of of web web based services. Uh, and the one possibility is because they themselves wanted to also sell video and these services were competing with the services they wanted to sell consumers. Um, so they, they actually uh, uh, got slapped on the wrist by the FCC for, for that throttling. Uh, they stopped doing it, but then they went to court uh, and, and, and uh, Comcast actually won in court. Uh, which was sort of one of the dominoes that indirectly eventually led to the net neutrality rules that were just repealed uh, uh, by the FCC. Uh, but again, far from the far from the only examples. You know, Verizon has certainly done it. They they shut off uh, a texting service that Nayral Pro-Choice uh, was using uh, again because they deemed the message too controversial. Uh, and on and on. So, you know, when these companies say trust us, I think we would say look at the history that some of these companies have, 
right? And and of course, if they if they are not planning to discriminate against different content based on based on uh, uh, what content's being accessed for the users' uh, political preferences, uh, then then they should be fine with net neutrality, which I think is what the vast majority of consumers would want. And indeed, the majority have said as much. I think what you're getting at is you're saying that this is ultimately a, a free speech issue. Is that the reason the ACLU has decided to take up this issue of net neutrality? Yeah, it absolutely is a free speech issue. But I think uh, to call it just a free speech issue, actually, I think short changes it. Uh, you know, a lot has changed since the 1990s. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting and ironic that Chairman Pai, the chairman of the FCC, in justifying this move says, uh, hey, we got it right in the 1990s with, quote, unquote, light touch regulation. Well, guess what? A lot has changed. We're living in a different world from what we were living in in the 1990s. One thing that's changed fundamentally is that uh, the Internet is not a tool anymore. The Internet is a fundamental part of the self-expression uh, and a vital part of the functioning of our democracy for, for everybody who lives here. It's really not feasible anymore to, to participate in a full way in our society without having uh, free access to the Internet. Uh, so it's not just freedom of speech, uh, although, of course, the Internet is a fabulous vehicle for free speech where uh, everyone from the, the largest corporate PAC that's heavily funded to the smallest uh, nonprofit or activist organization can use the same pipelines to try to get their message out there. Uh, but of course, it's also things like freedom of religion, right? So people uh, uh, find other practitioners of their faith, they put their message out there on, on the internet. Uh, it's freedom of association, so obviously social media tools are a large part of what allows people to find each other. That's also a constitutionally protected uh, uh, freedom. Uh, who to vote for, right? That the uh, voting rights are, are important and protected in the Constitution. Even things like, uh, you know, labor rights or health care, uh, you know, reproductive freedom, all of those things are, are areas in which the Internet plays a vital role in, in actualizing how people go about uh, 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 using and exercising those constitutional rights and freedoms. So, yes, it's freedom of speech, but it's, it's, it's far beyond that. Uh, and I think even if it wasn't clear in the 90s that, that the Internet was such a fundamental part of life, uh, I think it's indisputable now that, that you, uh, it, it, it's such a deep part of our society that you can't just uh, hand it over to the corporations to be the gatekeepers of those freedoms. So let's talk next about what the ACLU is advocating. Uh, you are encouraging Congress to use what is called the Congressional Review Act. Uh, this is something that Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is already taking up along with over a dozen other senators. And also I should mention that Mike Doyle of Pennsylvania is introducing this in the House. Tell us what the CRA is and what it does. Well, it's essentially a tool by which Congress gets to uh, next particular regulations that it doesn't like. So if an agency takes an action, Congress basically has a certain time period, in this case 60 days, to, to go back and reverse that. Uh, and we would certainly encourage uh, uh, Congress to, to, to do that. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the discontent over this decision 
by the FCC was that there really appeared to be no rational basis for it to be made. Yeah. Uh, since 2015, uh, uh, you know, the Internet has functioned equally as well as it did previously. Profits have still been at high levels for the companies most directly impacted. Uh, and online use continued. It even grew. Investments in the Internet grew. Um, and the ruling itself really didn't have much of a factual basis to, to justify it. So I think uh, that could certainly be uh, one reason why Congress should uh, go back and review this decision and overturn it. Uh, of course, you know, the, the reality is with, with uh, this somehow having become a partisan issue in Congress, uh, that, that uh, uh, may happen, but it, but it may not. Uh, and and so there are other kinds of action as well that, that we would encourage folks to take. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, because as you mentioned, there's a time limit of 60 days. So if that expires and the CRA doesn't work, uh, what would the ACLU be pushing for next? Well, I think we would look then at state-level bills. Uh, here in Washington State, for example, we already have at least one pre-filed bill by Representative Drew Hansen. Uh, and the idea there is to use the powers that uh, uh, states and local governments have. For example, uh, you know, they can uh, pass consumer protection laws. They have the ability to regulate utility poles and, and, and uh, that kind of thing. Well, let's, uh, yeah, and and let's talk a little bit about what uh, Governor Jay Inslee said in a press conference after this ruling about trying to do exactly what you're saying, which is to preserve net neutrality here in the state. Uh, he said that he might use state contracts as incentives for Internet service providers who would adhere to the principles of an open Internet. Uh, he also talked about legislation prohibiting government-owned ISPs from engaging in the sorts of things that overturning net neutrality would allow. I'm wondering if you feel like that is on a solid legal footing, one would imagine that it would invite legal challenges from the federal government. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. You know, I think the FCC put a strong preemption clause, in other words, uh, indicating their intent to try to uh, uh, force uh, their federal standard, in other words, a non-neutral net, uh, from prevailing over uh, state and local laws that, that intended to regulate in the same space. But as I said, you know, uh, states have traditionally had the ability to pass consumer protection legislation to regulate utility poles. Certainly, as Governor Inslee pointed out, uh, where the state itself is the purchaser of an Internet uh, service, they could use that leverage to try to force uh, providers to, to be neutral if they wanted to sell their services to, to a state entity. Uh, all of this, my guess is, will, will uh, be the subject of a long legal battle. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, I, I don't know that there, there's an obvious answer, but I do think that it's important for the states to try. You know, this is an important enough and fundamental enough question for, for us that, by the way, is, is very popular with consumers as well, right. right? Everybody who's ever disliked their Internet service provider uh, uh, and wanted to leave and go somewhere else, but they didn't have the competition to do so, right? Many of those people are very fearful of handing more power over to these corporations. Uh, as I said, the process by which we got here was also flawed. It appears that there were actually millions of potentially fraudulently submitted comments that, that may have been generated by bots. Um, so, you know, I think it's safe to assume that there are many consumers that, that would support 
uh, their legislators uh, in, in trying to do state and local work in this space. Uh, and I think uh, it, it's important to, to try to do that, and, and then we'll fight the legal battles to try to make it stick in the courts. Yeah, I want to talk a, about that, but I, I just kind of want to underscore what you're saying there. And I think, you know, a lot of people are very unnerved by a government agency that isn't directly answerable to voters uh, being able to make a decision like that that will affect so much of our lives, like the FCC. So ultimately, what one way to redress this might might be uh, at the ballot box? Yes, yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that you know what what individuals in the public <clears throat> have the opportunity to do now is basically to let every decision maker they're in contact with know how they feel about this issue. I think that includes local lawmakers who, as I said, they they have the ability to to do some things in this space, state lawmakers. Uh, and of course, their ISPs themselves, right? So there, there is some uh, uh, thought that uh, pressuring the ISPs directly uh, could also be a way to try to tr- uh, try to move them, particularly in spaces where uh, there are two uh, uh, competitors, where one is not neutral, vote with your feet, and and go to the other one. Uh, you know, it may be limited, of course, if both of them are moving in the direction of sure. non-neutrality, but it's certainly something that, that, that you can do and give them a business incentive uh, to, to try to remain neutral. Of course, uh, you know, the other problem here and one thing that's different that's changed since the 90s is that these entities also now have much more power uh, through technology to slice and dice content and to be able to block throttle or paid prioritize certain services over others. Uh, so, you know, we, we now have things like deep, deep packet inspection where they can sniff where you're going and what you're accessing, uh, the, the actual content of your web surfing. Uh, this was the subject of a big fight over broadband privacy, uh, which unfortunately, you know, w- was also repealed uh, at the federal level last year. Uh, and the their ability to do that will only increase over time as the analytics and technologies involved. And it would be probably uh, undetectable by the user, which makes me wonder, and I'm certainly no legal scholar, if that does get into some uh, constitutional violations. And you mentioned lawsuits. Uh, I'll say that uh, Attorney General Bob Ferguson uh, announced that he'll be filing suit against the Trump administration and the federal government, asserting that they have violated something called the Administrative Procedure Act. And we'll be following that on the show as it develops. But in terms of the the types of violations that you're uh, alluding to, is that something that the ACLU might potentially take on legally in the future? Well, we're certainly going to look at all of our legal options. You know, as I said, uh, when we were talking about legislation, uh, it may be arguable that there's no rational basis for the FCC to make this decision because the record was so sparse uh, and and it wasn't clear what problem uh, this this regulation was trying to fix. Uh, There may be bases to challenge, as you say, via the Administrative Procedures Act uh, because the, the process was, was sort of flawed and corrupted, uh, and uh, they really pushed this to a vote despite never resolving the fact that there were these uh, apparently millions of fraudulently submitted comments. Right. Uh, and, and outside bodies, for example, the National Hispanic Media Center, 
you know, was, was trying to make public records requests to get the FCC records to, to, to try to figure out what actually happened internally. Uh, but uh, they, never, they never actually got to, got to do that. Uh, and so they may have proceeded on a record that was substantially incomplete. And, and we would, uh, you know, certainly consider whether that was uh, worthy, of, worthy of a challenge. Uh, and then, of course, there's looking at the order itself to figure out if there were flaws that, that could be challenged. Uh, you know, the, the big picture question of, of what they're actually going to do, uh, I think, is, is a very challenging one because, as you say, you know, my guess is, given all the bad publicity that, that's come out of the, the, uh, this, that these broadband providers are not going to tomorrow announce that they're going to charge differential rates based on what content you want to access. But it may be much more subtle uh, and may not be detectable without uh, uh, the vigilance of uh, third-party organizations that can actually use electronic methods to figure out, for example, you know, are they slowing down or throttling access to a competitor's service? Uh, you know, we know, for example, that, that Google and YouTube are, are notoriously fastidious uh, for, uh, you know, looking at how long videos take to load because they know consumers give up really fast, right? right if a video is getting stuck. Well, guess what? They may not, you know, these broadband providers may not need to throttle very much. You know, maybe a three or four or five second delay, uh, which would be a very subtle thing that would be hard to pick up. Uh, but if a consumer gets that every time they go to a competitor's website, they may just uh, eventually stop going there and go somewhere where the videos uh, are loading faster. So, uh, you know, I suspect that it's going to be figure, uh, hard to figure out what exactly the fallout of this is. But uh, ultimately, the result uh, can really only go one way. You know, it's not going to be to benefit consumers. It's going to be uh, potentially to pad the profits uh, or discourage competition in the space where these entities already have a lot of power. Well, I do know that the ACLU is going to be keeping a very close eye on that. And I, I would love to check back in with you in the future uh, as this this whole picture starts to come into focus. Uh, but for now, uh, Shankar Narayan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. On Saturday, December 16th, The Washington Post learned that officials from the Trump administration met with policy analysts for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta and directed them not to use specific words in their 2018 budget documents. Those words are phrases are diversity, fetus, transgender, vulnerable, entitlement, science-based, and evidence-based. Uh, I will mention that following the story, the director of the CDC, Brenda Fitzgerald, has stated that there is no official ban in place though other officials at the agency continue to insist that there is. Shannon Hader recently ended her tenure at the CDC as director of the Division of Global HIV and TB, and we spoke with her last week about her recently announced run for Congress, but we have asked her back again uh, to talk about this latest development at the CDC. Shannon Hader, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me back. Glad to talk on this topic. It's really important. Absolutely. So during the last year of your tenure at the CDC, did you have any indication that something like this might be forthcoming from the Trump administration? Um, I wish I could say no, but I have to say yes. Absolutely yes. Um, you know, I served under four different presidents at some point or another in the federal government. And I have to say under this president, it was totally different. Um, you know, previously I knew 
uh, my expectations. I know what the job is, right, to follow the evidence, ensure that our budgets that come from Congress are used wisely and efficiently, you know, making sure if there are new signature opportunities from a given new president, um, you jump into it to battle disease. You know, George W. Bush's uh, PEPFAR, or the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, is a great example of that. You know, it was a groundbreaking global HIV initiative that served mil- that has saved millions of lives worldwide. And I mention that so that, you know, we remember that CDC doesn't have to be a partisan punching bag, right? right? Um, but this administration is different. And I absolutely saw the beginning of these non-transparent, insidious ways that can purposely set programs up for failure or block them altogether. You know, I, I think we talked before, I saw them starting a slow roll critical decisions, you know, to delay congressionally appropriated funds from going out the door to support important programs and hiring freezes that can keep you from getting, you know, critical staff in. Um, but now with this, you know, we all see, thank goodness it's been leaked, but, you know, we all see them trying to ban critical words that communicate signs and priorities. Yeah. You know, on the face of it, uh, this has some very Orwellian overtones. Uh, actually, it almost reads like an onion headline, uh, but I, I guess such is life <laughs> in 2017. Uh, I, I won't ask you to try and get into the head of somebody like Trump or his officials, but what do you suppose the ultimate motivation is here? Yeah. Is it to is it to hobble the CDC's ability to get specific funding? Well, you know, when you look at this, it's, words matter, right? So erasing words can be like erasing people and priorities. And when restrictions like this or directives like this are attached to the quote-unquote budget justification process, to me, it makes an intended threat very clear. And the threat is to the doctors and scientists at CDC that try to keep us safe. And the threat is, you know, comply or risk losing the funding for critical programs that help protect the public's health, you know. So for dedicated health professionals, and I cannot state more strongly how dedicated my peers and colleagues, these doctors and scientists are, who really, truly care about saving lives and eradicating disease, this has an enormous chilling effect on their day-to-day work. You know, it leaves these professionals caught in a potentially unwinnable situation. You know, either comply with this directive so that funding continues to allow you to do as much of the right thing as you can, even with those restrictions, you know, or refuse and risk the ability to do, you know, any of it and to help anyone at all. And that is really unwinnable. So I think this chilling effect is very important um, and it can be very ominous and very insidious. So you you talk about doctors and scientists uh, and a a chilling effect there and and the phrases science-based and evidence-based being singled out indicates a general hostility towards science, I, I think, with this administration. And while that's certainly frightening, it seems in line with their attitudes generally, I, I guess, likewise, words like fetus and transgender. But, you know, the words that struck out, stuck out for me were vulnerable and entitlement. What, what do you make of their inclusion in the list? Yeah, and I guess we're all puzzling about this together, right? Um, I would say when it comes to entitlement, uh, I make a couple of a couple of uh, uh, sort of thoughts about this. I think one is it's a little bit of a red herring because at CDC, we don't actually really talk about entitlements uh, Mm. much at all. That kind of word is much more often associated with uh, programs like Medicaid and Medicare um, or, you know, other HHS departments that are not the CDC. So, you know, it wouldn't really impact CDC's 
thinking or strategy to not be using that word because I don't think we use it much already, which makes me worry that this same set of words is being shopped around other agencies as well. Um, and so that the impact might be much more broad than just what's been leaked from this meeting. Right. Well, the, also, as I mentioned, the, the word vulnerable is on the list. What do you make of that? You know, it is very striking that that's on the list because understanding who is vulnerable to what in terms of disease and, and health effects is a critical part of what we do in public health, Right. And if you take away vulnerable, it takes away the ability to address issues that are specific to particular people, particular groups, uh, whether it's transgender individuals, whether it's those who are vulnerable to specific health threats. There's a lot of kinds of vulnerabilities. It's biomedical vulnerabilities. It can be vulnerabilities based on where people live or what their socioeconomic factors are that expose them to different health threats. I mean, at the most simplest level, kids are more vulnerable. Infants and small children are more vulnerable from horrible outcomes from influenza. If we can't talk about targeting problems, uh, targeting programs and resources to those that are most vulnerable of having bad outcomes, then it really uh, hampers our ability to do public health. And to be clear, the language that they're talking about is specifically language that would be used in crafting a budget. And so if you're unable to use words like vulnerable, it does hamper your ability to actually serve vulnerable people, right? Well, yeah, because it suggests that perhaps there's just a one-size-fits-all generic program that is uh, equally as important to everyone and just should spread the resources out across the board, even where they're not needed. You know, the whole point of vulnerable is how we get efficient and target our programs and resources to those who are going to benefit from them so that we change the health outcomes and don't just waste our money by having a generic, untargeted uh, intervention that is only going to help a few of the people. You know, so as I mentioned uh, at the top of the interview, the director of the CDC has said that there is no ban in place, and it seems to be a matter of of dispute internally. What do you make of the conflicting information that we're getting about whether or not this constitutes a ban? Yeah, um, I I would say, number one, a ban versus discouragement, the nuance on that is not so important. Uh, Number two, I would actually, I hope that Dr. Fitzgerald, who's a a pretty new director of the CDC, I hope she does the right thing. So she is, uh, she's certainly a presidential appointee, but she's also a public health uh, official. She's a public health expert. Um, I don't think that this messaging is coming from her. I think it is coming from much further up the chain. And I'm glad she is putting out tweets and messages to the staff saying that there is not a ban. I'd like her to go further then and make sure that, in fact, in action, she's also then clearly protecting and defending her dedicated staff against any pressures that would impede them from making science and evidence-based decisions. So she has a real opportunity here to lead us towards safer and healthier communities, to fulfill her oath to protect the public's health. And to sort of be a, you know, no-go line for messages that are coming down from higher up in the administration. I hope that that's what that means. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll be optimistic that she can intervene and help protect her agency. 
Yeah. Well, you know, in closing, um, and you've touched on this a little bit already, but I just want to kind of talk about the potential ramifications as you see them. If this order were to be enforced in the CDC, in the HHS, what would it mean in terms of the CDC specifically being able to carry out its core mission? Yeah, you know, core mission is that people across America and around the world really rely on the CDC to keep them safe and healthy. And the CDC relies on its world-class scientists and doctors to follow the evidence, follow the evidence irrespective of the popularity of its findings, and apply scientific solutions to these difficult health problems and efforts to avoid widespread illness and loss of life. Um, In addition to the banning of these words that have been suggested, I think there is also some suggestions of what should be substituted. Uh, For example, CDC bases its recommendations on science in consideration with community standards and wishes. That seems to be a messaging that says, you know, facts and science are just another opinion and other opinions count more. Um, That would really get in the way of the core mission to protect people around the country and around the world, keep them safe and healthy and do what needs to be done uh, based on the science and evidence. And frankly, we always collaborate with communities on crafting solutions that work. That's the public in the public health. Um, So very chilling, very hobbling and makes me really scared. Yeah. Well, I think we're we're all with you uh, on that. But I I, I want to thank you for taking the time to weigh in on this issue. Shannon Hader, thank you so much for being on the program. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Anytime. Uh, Hopefully the story will go away, but I don't think it will, because I think it's really the the start of more and more uh, problems coming to light. On Tuesday night, with the impending passage of the GOP tax bill, several members of Indivisible's Washington's 8th District showed up to Issaquah City Hall to hold a candlelight vigil in observation of how the tax bill will hurt the working class. I asked a few of the people in attendance why they'd come. I'm Susan Glicksberg, and I came because I think this is a scam being perpetrated upon the American people, and especially the fact that all of our tax breaks go away, yet the corporations and the wealthy continue to benefit um, in perpetuity, and it pisses me off. I think it's, and it was also a very unpopular uh, bill, so I don't understand why our government is out passing bills that the people don't want. I thought they worked for us. Um, Brenda Severance, and it's better than leaving a lot of bad, bad messages on Dave Riker's website tonight. So I thought I'd come in person. Let's see. Maybe he'll come and be with his constituents, and we can tell him what we really think to his face. I'm Bob Clough. I care, and I'm worried. I'm worried that you know, the direction of uh, where the congressional leadership is taking us. So I'm out here with my friends trying to get some energy and some warmth to move forward and know that the election in 2018 is critical. So we continue to resist, and now we're going to start to switch gears to support. It's going to be fun. I'm Kim Schreier, pediatrician and congressional candidate. I came out tonight to call attention to what this administration is doing. I have deep concerns about the health and the well-being of my patients under this administration, and you can't listen to what they say. You need to watch what they do. They passed this big, giant $1.5 trillion welfare plan for the wealthy and for corporations, and they can't figure out how to fund children's health insurance program. We need to call them on it. Hi, I'm Jan Cox from Indivisible, and I'm here because they passed the tax scam, and I know that it's going to hurt my husband and me, who are, we're both 74, and it's going to affect Medicare, it's going to affect Social Security, it's already cut 
my Social Security in anticipation. And so, yeah, we're, we're really upset. It's, it's a bad thing. Well, so uh, this is technically the last show of the year, and I was hoping to end on an up note, but uh, the news over the last few weeks has not been good, as what we've discussed on today's show will attest. Uh, And then, as you have all likely heard, on Monday, an Amtrak train derailed in DuPont near Olympia, killing three people and injuring dozens more. Our love and our thoughts go out to the injured and especially to the families of those who lost their lives. We are thinking about you this holiday. So the end of the year is a time for reflection. And if you are like me, you've probably been doing a fair amount of assessment. It is hard to believe that it has been one year, well, actually less than one year since Trump took office. It seems like way longer. And I think the reason for that is because, you know, every day brings a fresh outrage. But There have been extraordinary victories along the way. Indivisible members across the state and across the country helped hold the line on Obamacare three times. They scored historic wins in Alabama and Virginia and in other red state races in Montana and Kansas in Georgia. They helped Democrats gain an average of 15 points from previous races, which is huge. We have helped each other during hurricanes and other disasters. We have marched and we have fought and we have won. And we did it together. I am sure I'm not alone when I say that I have made what will absolutely be lifelong friends through this movement. The silver lining in this very dark chapter in our history is the people that have been brought together through this. Because while this whole thing is difficult, and make no mistake, it has been a rough year, we have had each other. That has made all the difference. So I want to say thank you. Thank you for listening, but especially thank you for all of the work that you do and will continue to do. And I I hope that over the holiday season that you're able to spend some time with some of the people that you love to find some downtime, get some peaceful moments, get some moments of reflection. That's the self-care that they talk about. We are going to need to be ready to hit it hard in 2018. There is a lot to do. There's a lot at stake. But make no mistake, we can and we will do this. So. Happy holidays and love to you all. And that'll do it for this week's show. Uh, We do have another show next week where we will be talking with Ahmed Gaya of the Alliance for Clean Jobs and Energy, as well as with Anila Afzali of the Muslim Association of Puget Sound. But I will be preparing that show this week and will be taking all of next week off. See, I'm taking my own advice. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you also to my guests, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Shankar Narayan, and Shannon Hader. Special thanks to Doug Honig and Omar Farouk. And thanks as always to you for listening. Have a great holiday, and we'll talk to you next year. Bye.